Thank you very much. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for Mark, uh, your obedient servant. You pray you be with him now and uh, bless him. Give him the right words to say. And for ourselves, we pray again that you open the ears and eyes of our hearts. We might hear and see you in a brand new way today. And just bless each one, we pray here today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good morning. It is the Christmas season. It's my favorite time of year. Now, we know that businesses love Christmas also because they can sell things that everyone longs for, that everyone wishes for. And so they advertise peace and joy and unity, hope, love, and giving. A great example of this is a classic Coca-Cola commercial from the 1970s. Now, Coca-Cola gathered young people from all over the world and put them on a hillside. I think it was in Austria. And they filmed the commercial, which became hugely popular in America. And so they repeated it with a Christmas theme. Have a look. Well, there's a reason Coca-Cola can sell love. I'd like to buy the world a home, furnish it with love. We love because God first loved us, and, and God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus suffered. He was born to die. Hanging over the first Christmas was a shadow. Looming over the crib was the cross. Is it any wonder the Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrows? And one of the things he sorrowed over was his impending death. Let's pick up that sorrow in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. And there we find these words. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is the beginning of the passion of Jesus. Now, passion in relation to Jesus comes from a Latin word, which means to suffer. 
And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the realization of the nearness of bearing sin fills Jesus with sorrow. A sorrowful means full of sorrow. There was no room for comfort, joy, hope. Synonyms for what filled Jesus include sad, unhappy, dejected, miserable, downhearted, despondent, despairing, desolate, gloomy, mournful, grief-stricken, broken-hearted, inconsolable. Sorrowful also means showing sorrow. Luke 22 tells us this about the sorrow of Jesus in the garden. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, it seems his disciples did not see that great anguish, but they did see the sorrow that filled Jesus. And when you read some of the accounts of this time in the garden, you're left to guess why the disciples kept falling asleep. Now, I'm sure everyone here has experienced that, that surge of adrenaline and energy you get that empowers you when you're excited and motivated. I tell people when that when I was in university and seminary, I spent more time in the gym than the library. I would play first and then study. And I lost a lot of sleep during my time in seminary. I had to stay up all night to get assignments done. But, you know, I never felt tired. I was always energized to work through the night. Have you guys experienced that kind of energy? Why didn't the disciples have that kind of energy on this night? Well, Luke 22, 45 tells us why. They were exhausted from sorrow. They heard the words of Jesus that night. They saw his sorrow. They knew something bad was about to happen, and the sorrow just overwhelmed them. You look at that word troubled in Matthew 26, 37. Now, troubled is stronger than sorrowful. Troubled indicates loathing, a maddening grief. And when used together, sorrowful and troubled indicate the presence and effect of an object of horror. And that object is sin. Jesus recoiled he was repulsed. He, he drew back from the sin he would be carrying. Now, pause there and consider Jesus' reaction to sin because we are so comfortable with sin. We actually embrace sin. The Bible says, although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve <clears throat> death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. That's from the book of Romans. And so all up and down this country, councils are permitting gay pride parades. In October, the BBC announced it would increase the prominence of LGBT staff and empower LGBT staff. At a major educational institution in our area, in that major publication to school leavers, they write, join one of the student groups such as the LGBT group. They could have put netball, drama, art, or even the Christian Union. And imagine any teenage boy or girl 
unmarried, pregnancy comes. It's often announced with great joy on Facebook and comment after comment after comment. As far as I can tell, it's hard to tell sometimes on Facebook, it seems that it's full of happiness and joy with absolutely no shame or guilt or idea that what happened was sin. We openly celebrate sin. Do you know there are people so immersed in sin, they actually say heaven will be boring. They say, well, how will we learn? We need trouble to teach us. And they ignore God who said the wages of sin is death, not life and growth and maturity. Sin is killing us. In the garden, the thought of bearing sin almost kills Jesus. Let's read that in Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That literally means that just the thought of taking on sin would have killed Jesus right there in the garden. Had God not intervened. And Luke twenty two forty three says an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. You see, this was not the place or the time that, that God had ordained Jesus to die. Jesus was to die at the, at, at the hands of Gentiles by crucifixion. We know this, for example, from Psalm twenty two sixteen, where it reads, Dogs, which is slang for Gentiles, have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. You see, in the midst of this symphony of sorrow, God is running the show. Everything will happen according to God's plan. Now, nobody, nobody ever has, nobody ever will suffer as much as Jesus suffered. And since God is in control here during this worst concentration of suffering ever inflicted upon a human, rest assured, he will handle you in your moment of suffering. Now notice the last sentence there in verse 38. It says, stay here and keep watch with me. The divine one is, is begging for comfort from the presence of friends. The words to the song read, wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible, love indestructible, Frailty appears. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship. For this is your God. This is your God. Now to the Muslim, to the Jehovah's Witness, to the Jew, it is below absurdity. It is beyond belief that God would show weakness. And so in their mind, Jesus cannot be God. Yet this, this frail, failing, falling Jesus is showing indestructible love, not weakness. Isaiah 53 verses 10 and 11 says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
suffering to give us life, conquering through sacrifice. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship. For this is your God. This is your God. It was God's plan from before the creation of the world to have his son suffer horrendously. The divine son was suffering to such an extent in the garden that it was physically killing him. And and the physical beating, uh, the physical pain, uh, the torture and torment had not even yet begun. This proves that for Jesus, the spiritual aspect of his suffering was by far the worst. Why? It's because the Holy One was about to experience sin. And so he pleads with God in Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. (coughs) Now, we like skipping to the end, because we know that Jesus died and he offered forgiveness if anybody would just believe in him. And here in verse 39, we like skipping to this last sentence, yet not what I will, but what you will. I have recent proof of this. I was in a Bible study about three weeks ago, and we're studying uh, these events from the Garden of Gethsemane, although we were in the Gospel of Mark. The Bible study leader asks, what was the focus of Jesus' prayer in the garden? And two men immediately start to speak, and one started just a split second after the other, so it started like an echo. And they both said together, yet not as I will, but as you will. And there was a dramatic pause, because that is not the focus Now, I would have added my voice to the duet, and it would have been a trio singing, not my will, but your will. But I was studying this passage for this message, so I said, take this cup from me. And the leader pointed to me, and I got the brownie points that morning. (laughs) Jesus was not asking God to perform his will. Jesus knew God would do whatever he willed. Jesus simply affirmed that. Jesus was not asking God to help him do God's will. That was settled before the creation of the world. It was affirmed throughout Scripture and throughout the Gospel of Matthew. What Jesus was praying was, God, you will perform your will. God, I will will do your will. Together, we will obtain forgiveness of sin. But Father, Father, please, if there's any other way, that I don't have to drink the cup. Please, please, God, can we do it that way? That is what Jesus was praying. And I I think that as a church, we've skipped to the end of the story so often and so fast, we struggle to know what to do with suffering. And if the church struggles, no wonder the world doesn't have a clue what to do with suffering. As an evangelist, I go house by house offering Jesus. And I'm thankful that Justin and Vic are doing it here also. And when I say that God loves them, you know, a good number of people over the years, they look at me and they say, God loves me? He has a funny way of showing it. 
It happened again Wednesday. I met a lady, and her words, her attitude, she was so lonely, so dispirited. And I said, God loves you. Jesus died for you. And she looked me in the eye and said, he has a funny way of showing it. And she went on to tell me that she started off life abused by her father. She was put in care. She was abused. She had pretty much given up on humans. And she had a dog that she adored. And four weeks ago, that dog died. And she looked at me again and said, and God's not going to give me the money to get that dog any sooner, is he? This woman had skipped to the end without understanding. God has promised both suffering and love. Everybody hurts. That's one of my favorite songs. But it's also a promise from God that needs to be spoken of a lot more. Now, the cup is a symbol of the wrath of God. A number of verses in the Bible tell us that. Let me give you just one. In Revelation chapter 14, an angel speaks and says, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Remember, no one will ever suffer like Jesus has. But everyone, like Jesus, will suffer. Isaiah tells us Jesus was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He entered this world and was despised and rejected by men. If they rejected Jesus, who is love and holiness and truth, they will surely reject us who lie and deceive and are slow to forgive. Everybody suffers, even the godly. And Jesus, who was fully human, was an example of that. I know a family whose oldest son was killed by a car at age 16 a few months ago. They're all Christians, and I want to share what the mother posted on Facebook. It's from a Facebook page called The Good Grief Project. It says, in part, when things are dark, it's okay to be dark. Not every corner needs to be the bright light of encouragement. Similarly, don't encourage someone to have gratitude for the good things that still exist. Good things and horrible things occupy the same space. They don't cancel each other out. I think that is good advice. And I want to show you something good that is occupying the same space as the suffering of Jesus. We find it in verse 41. And there it says, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the body is weak. These are among the last recorded words Jesus spoke to his disciples before the cross. It is commonly thought that the last words spoken can throw light on a person's character. And here from the lips of Jesus, 
is life. Jesus is saying that there's a part of every human, our spirit, which acknowledges God. Now, Romans chapter 1 clearly states there is no such thing as an atheist. Now, an explanation of that for another sermon, another time. But we are all made in the image of God, which means we have a responsibility to seek, follow, and serve God. Our spirit longs to do that. And that's why there are so many people outside of Christ who, who long to do good and emphasize being good. It's their spirit which knows God and longs for God that's urging them on. But the body, the flesh, is weak. Uh, Jeremiah tells us our own hearts deceive us. That means our reasoning, our logic, our wisdom is flawed. And many are deceived into thinking we don't need Jesus. As Christians, we also fall into that deception. And the remedy, according to verse 41, is prayer. Jesus gives us words of life. In the midst of his suffering, he says, stay connected to God, submit to him. And how often should we pray? Continually, constant trust, constant seeking of God's wisdom, God's guidance, his strength, his love, constant confession. There's life in these words in this time of suffering. And Jesus is preaching what he practices His spirit is intent on doing God's will, but his flesh weakens at the prospect of carrying sin. And he goes away to pray three times. Now we turn to verses 45 and 46. To prepare you for the impact and application of these verses, Before we read them, I I need each of you to imagine something. Well, actually, let's read them first. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. To prepare you for the application and impact of these verses, I want to ask you, please, to imagine something. I want you to imagine your mother has just died, or maybe your oldest child or a grandchild. But imagine, please, that your mother died brutally and mercilessly. She was beaten, and before she or that child was beaten, they were abused sexually. How are you feeling? Imagine you and the media, the court, everyone knows who did it. There is no doubt they were caught in the act and they pleaded guilty at the trial. How are you feeling about that person? And it's not just that you know who did it, But at least three years before they did it, you knew they were going to do it. It's not important how you knew, but it wasn't a guess. It wasn't a hunch. It wasn't a suspicion. You knew. And it's not just that you knew, but this person was a close friend of yours. 
for the past three years, you ate with them. They spent lots of time at your house. You'd watch movies together, play games together. They sat next to you in church. And you knew. How would you have handled that person for those three years? You see, in verses 45 and 46, you read those words and you know Jesus knew. And Judas wasn't about to hurt someone Jesus loved. Judas was aiming for Jesus. How did Jesus handle Judas? He loved him. It's amazing. He loved him. You remember when, um, <laughs> remember when your mother would love you by saying, don't do that or you'll be punished. And she was giving you the chance to pause and to think and to change your mind and save yourself. Well, turn back to verse 20 of the same chapter. There in Matthew 26, verse 20, we find these words. It says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. That means Judas was there. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. See, your mom, your mom knew you. Your mom knew your sinful behaviors. And your mom would lovingly warn you, don't do it. Jesus knew what Judas was planning and lovingly warned him. Also, verse 23, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Verse 24, the son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Within 15 hours from this moment, Jesus would be hanging on a cross, obtaining forgiveness, even for Judas, if he would repent. The Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever, including Judas, believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Judas could have left that night singing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Instead, he left singing, I did it my way. And that's sad. Because the book of Acts informs us that Judas ended up in hell. And to the sadness, I want to add shock. I remember, re um, not reading, I remember reading about a book that was written by a German historian on Hitler. And this book angered Germans. You see, the book showed Hitler enjoying food and wine and music and friendship, and the Germans were outraged because that meant Hitler was more like them than they imagined. Well, that's not the shocking news. 
It's shocking that Judas was so similar to the other 11 disciples that even when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and when Jesus further indicated that Judas was the betrayer, the disciples still had no clue. Judas was a faithful member of the church. He was church treasurer. He was good. He was respected. That's not the shocking news. That's true, but that's not the shock. It's shocking that since Jesus, I mean, since Judas blended in so well with the disciples, yet was not a follower of Jesus, that you could have possibly someone sitting on your right or on your left or in front of you or behind you. And maybe for years it looks like to you they're a believer, but they're not following Jesus. But that's not the shock. That's possibly true, but that's not the shock. The shock is this. You. You. Every one of you is a person sitting next to someone or in front of someone or behind someone. The shock is therefore it could be you who looks the part but you're not a part of Jesus. Usually, the mistake we make is we add our goodness and our church involvement to our belief in Jesus. The song we sang says, Christ alone, cornerstone. In the Bible, the salvation of Abraham, Paul, The thief on the cross had absolutely nothing to do with their good works or church involvement. The thief didn't get down from the cross and go to church or help an old lady cross the street. If church attendance stopped for you for some reason, or if pornography was found on your computer, or you committed some other crime and you're sitting in a jail cell, would you have absolute certainty that you would be with Jesus forever? Today is a good day to examine your faith, as the Bible encourages, to ensure you are not resembling Judas down to the betraying of the suffering of Jesus and trying to get into heaven your way. As if this suffering of Jesus was not enough. If you have any questions, talk to me, talk to somebody, and let's ensure you know this suffering of Jesus alone enables you to enjoy God's love now and forever.